So as we continue this morning focusing on the story of Jonah, and as Stephen said, as we not only listen to that story, but as Jennifer paints for us a snapshot of one of the moments from that story, I hope that that we realize that worship has this opportunity, if we'll let it, to not just teach us ideas, but to shape our imagination, to, to connect our hearts with the story of God in ways that, that are very difficult in any other place than when we gather together on Sunday mornings like this, and we ask for God to transform us and to change us. And, and one of the best ways we do that is by finding new ways that the story of Scripture connects with, intersects with the story of our lives. And while none of us wants to have to connect with the story of Jonah, especially in the role of Jonah, we all have moments where that happens. And what do those moments mean? How do they change us? How does God use those moments to, to change the trajectory of our lives, the way that, that God changes drastically the direction that Jonah's life is headed in just moments before this image um, unfolds and breaks into his life. We're going to listen to Jonah pray this morning. That's the first thing we're going to do. So if you have your Bible, open up to Jonah chapter 2. We'll actually start reading the last verse of chapter 1. And again, if you're someone who wants to get a closer look, you have a closing window to get up and move right now. I'll let you. I'll pretend I don't notice you walking around. We have a few extra uh, seats here in the front. If you want to get a closer look, you or your children. Jonah 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish. Jennifer, it doesn't mention teeth here, but we're just going we're gonna to go with it, okay? I'm telling you, that fish is scaring me. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From, the deep, in the realm, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers, they swept over me. And I said, I, I have been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threaten me. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you... Lord, my God, you brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Let's pray. God, we, we cry out to you, and we thank you for being with us in our lives. 
We thank you for being with us in our lives when times are good, when the sun is shining and we feel the potential and the hope that's out in front of us and and, and shaping our, our future. And we we thank you for those, those times when we, we, we pray and we don't know what to say. Our hearts are broken. Maybe we feel like Jonah, that there's no way out. And yet we want to believe that even then, you're with us. That even there, you're beside us. And that we trust in you, God. We reach out to you. When we have nowhere else to turn, we turn to you. God, when we're here on Sunday mornings, sometimes those, those deep moments of despair can seem distant. But we want to speak the truth. We want, we want to admit to you, God, that even on Sunday mornings, there are times we come here with broken hearts and, and broken dreams, and we don't, we don't know if we have the strength to keep going. And yet we come here to this place with your people, and we ask for you to save us, to rescue us again from whatever it is that's threatening us, from whatever it is we're afraid of, God. We pray that you would bring us your salvation. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So where you happen to be when you pray deeply impacts how you pray. Right? The, the prayers that you might say as you slip off into to sleep, it's not the same kind of prayer that you pray when you're getting ready to have to have a difficult conversation with someone you care about. A prayer you might say for safe travels before you leave on a trip, that's different than the prayer that you pray when there's really bad turbulence right in the middle of the flight. The, the prayer that you pray when you're sitting down at a meal, it's, it's not the same kind of prayer that you pray when the doctor calls with some test results. Where you are when you pray directly impacts how you pray. And there are times all of us have in our lives where we are suddenly and shockingly awake to the fact that we don't have control the way we want to have control, that, that we don't get to decide all the things that happen to us that we have to face. And in those moments, our prayers are not calm, routine prayers of commitment or faith. They are desperate prayers begging for God to help us. They are not eloquent prayers. They are rarely long prayers. They are prayers where we are, are simply opening our hearts up to God and reaching out as far as we know how to reach out and, and hoping against hope that even now, somehow, some way, things are going to be okay. It was October 17th at 5.04 in the evening in 1989. I was sitting down at the dinner table getting ready to enjoy a corn dog and getting ready to watch my San Francisco Giants play in the World Series against the Oakland A's. So it's probably a World Series that most of you didn't care very much about. They called it the Battle of the Bay. And at 5.04, we heard it coming. 
Now, I, I was living in the Bay Area of California at the time, and we often had small earthquakes. So much so that when we would have earthquakes, you know, if we were outside playing in the backyard and it rumbled a little bit, we wouldn't even go inside to talk to our parents about it. It was just kind of normal stuff, but we heard this coming. And my mother looked at me and said, it's going to be bad. We need to get under the table. And so immediately, me and my sisters and my mother, we, we scrambled under the table and our house started to fall apart around us. Plates were flying out of the, the cupboards. The refrigerator tipped over. The TV came out of the entertainment center. The, the windows all around us were breaking. And I, I remember praying, please, please, please. And the house started screeching enough. My mother was afraid it was going to come down. And so she said, we've got to get out of the house. We've got to get out of the house. And so we tried to stand up and get out of our, our kitchen into our living room. And we were all falling. We couldn't, we couldn't move. And so we just started crawling on our hands and our knees. And my mother, I heard her start praying, please, God, save us, please. We got to our front door, and it wasn't even really there anymore. It had torn from some of the hinges and was, was moving around. And so I tried to hold it back, and we got through, and the trees in our front yard were breaking in half in the trunks. The sidewalk was breaking in front of our house. Fifteen seconds. And I'm telling you, it seemed like an eternity. Fifteen seconds. 3,757 people were injured. 12,000 people were almost instantly homeless. 63 people lost their lives. 15 seconds. It wasn't an eloquent prayer. Please, God. Please, God. Please. And I remember when it stopped, my mother was holding us close, and with tears flowing down her face, she said, thank you. Thank you. I was still holding my corn dog. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I didn't let go. You you might have some of you in this room, you know, whether it may be a flood or a tornado, every time we get a storm report, Riley's nervous that it's going to be a superstorm. We all know what it's like to have moments where we can't, we don't have time to be eloquent. We don't have time to, to say all the things we'd like to say. It's just please, please, please. And then after God rescues us, thank you, thank you, thank you. For me, it, that, that memory will never fade of that earthquake in October of 1989. But the time in my life where I, I really remember being, being so afraid that I, I didn't know what to do next was, was several years ago when I was sitting in my doctor's office and she looked me straight in the eyes and she said, it's a mass. And, and in that moment, my mind was assaulted by all kinds of questions, panicked questions. Questions that at that time, nobody, including my doctor, had any answers for. What is it? How bad is it? How far along is it? What, how, how many surgeries am I going to have to have? Am I going to have to do radiation or chemotherapy? 
Lauren was seven months pregnant with Riley. Uh, is she going to be okay? Am, am I going to make it? All, all those questions, I mean, just one after another. And I, I mean, time stopped. And I couldn't move. I, I couldn't really breathe. And then suddenly time started right back up, and it was going way too fast for me because I was going to have to have emergency surgery right then. And I just, I didn't know what else to do than to say to God, please, please carry me through this. Get, get me through this, please. It doesn't have to be a storm. It, it doesn't have to be an illness. Everybody in this room has had times when we're praying. And as Paul says, it's not even fully formed words that we're praying. Right? It's groans, and it's, it's fear, soul-deep fear, and we beg for mercy. We beg for God to rescue us from whatever it is we're having to face. In fact, there are people in our world, many people in our world, who, who don't have much of a relationship with God at all, who, who have probably no meaningful connection to a faith community of any kind, but if they get into a bad enough fix, they're going to start praying. If it hurts bad enough, if, if they're scared enough, they will turn to heaven and beg for help. And we wonder in those moments, is anyone listening? Is anyone really listening? That's the place we find Jonah in his story this morning. He's in a bad place. He, he's had a rough couple of days. We need to give him that much. God breaks into the silence of his life and says, I want you to go and I want you to speak to the people of Nineveh on my behalf. And, and Jonah knows what that means. Even when God says, I want you to go and preach against the city of Nineveh, Jonah knows that God only speaks to people God's in relationship with. Right. So even though he's going there to speak words of judgment... Jonah knows that when God loves you, God sends somebody to tell you the truth if you've somehow lost your way. That's how God treats Israel, right? There's all kinds of prophets that God sends to his people. Sometimes they speak words of comfort. Other times they speak words of warning and judgment. That kind of truth coming from God is grace, and Jonah knows that. So he, he can't bring himself to do it because Nineveh happens to be the capital city of a nation that Jonah is absolutely sure because of, of violence between their two nations, Jonah is sure that most of the people who live in that city hate people like him. And Jonah, if we're going to be honest, wants to hate them back. And so the last thing he's willing to do is to go and show them grace by speaking to them on God's behalf. So he decides he's going to run away from a God that you can't run away from. He's going to try it anyway. So he, he gets on a boat, and he starts to head in the opposite direction from where God has told him to go. And God sends this storm to stop him from getting any farther off course than he already is. But Jonah is certain that there's only one reason for that storm. That storm is, is sent by God to kill him for his disobedience. 
Now, we're learning more about what Jonah thinks of God than who God really is. We're learning more about how Jonah sees God than how God is actually trying to relate to Jonah because God is not sending that storm to kill Jonah or anyone else. God is sending that storm to wake Jonah up. And if Jonah will let it happen, God is actually sending that storm to save him. So... There's these innocent sailors that are caught up in the midst of all this, and they don't know what to do, and they go to Jonah, and they ask him, what have you done? Who are you running from? He tells them, he, he, he says to them, you're going to have to throw me overboard. Still thinking that he's going to be like a sacrifice, right? Thrown on an altar to stop an angry God. That's what he's thinking is happening. They don't want to do it. They're good, decent people. They're not people of Israel, but they're good, decent people. They don't want to throw him overboard. They try to row back to shore. That doesn't work. So they finally decide that this guy says this is what needs to happen, and he, he knows this God who sent this storm. So they toss him overboard into the water. And immediately the sea is calm. And they they immediately start to worship Jonah's God. They, they are converted in that moment from their own faiths and their own belief to believing in the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, and they make promises, they make vows. And here's what's interesting. If you've looked at Jonah carefully, all of Jonah chapter 1, there's lots of praying going on. None of it's Jonah. Jonah never speaks to God in the first chapter of the book of Jonah. He has nothing to say to God because he's angry at God for asking him to go and show grace to people he doesn't want to show grace to. But now, now that he's in the water and he feels like he knows exactly how this story is going to go, he's going to drown. This is going to be the last place that he draws his last breath. He decides to pray. Now, I have to believe that as Jonah starts to pray, we really don't have those words recorded because they probably weren't really much, much of words, right? He's sputtering, he's drowning, he's begging for help. And I'm guessing he's wondering, is there anybody up there listening? And if there is somebody up there listening, is, is that God who I have offended, who I have been disobedient to, is that God going to do anything gracious towards me now? Because I, I don't deserve that at all. He asked me to partner with him. I refused to partner with him. And now I've got myself in this horrible situation. But somehow, someway, Jonah decides that maybe, just maybe, he's gotten this God wrong. And so he reaches out. And he prays. And the words that we have recorded are eloquent. He seems to have time in the prayer that we have recorded to try to, to speak the truth that he has experienced. Which can only mean one thing. He probably writes this prayer while he's stuck in the stomach of a supernatural fish that came to get him. Right? He probably doesn't say this prayer while he's trying not to drown. Now, I don't know much about being inside of a supernatural fish, but I'm pretty sure it has to be terrifying 
and disgusting. It, it couldn't have been pleasant. In fact, in many ways, it had to seem, had to feel like being buried alive. And there he is, and he's, he starts talking to this God that so far he has refused to talk to, and he's been trying to run from. And it is, it's inside this, this horrible place where none of us would want to be that Jonah manages to come back to his senses. Right? He comes back to himself. He sees his own story, his, his own situation for what it really is. He is where he is because he has refused to go where God has called him. He is where he is because he, he thought he knew better than God the kind of life he needed to be living. He is where he is because he, he wants to live his life on his own terms. He wants to do the things he wants to do. And when God asks him to do something that is the last thing he wants to do, the last place he wants to go, he thinks he can figure out how to build a better life without God. And he finds what all of us find out when we make that same decision, that we know better. And it never takes us any place good. So here he is, and he, he knows it's not like some natural disaster or a random disease. He knows that he's where he is because of his choices, because of his decisions, because of his actions. Jonah is suffering in the stomach of a fish for one reason and one reason alone. He refused to share God's grace with other people. Jonah is where he is, this dark place where nobody would ever want to go. He's there because he has refused to share God's grace with other people. Jonah doesn't only need saving from the ocean deep. Jonah needs saving from the deep darkness that's inside of him. The fact of the matter is, it's, it's taken this this horrible shock of being thrown into this angry sea and then this fish coming along and swallowing him and entombing him for three days, it has taken that for Jonah to see the real, honest truth. It's a truth that he, he's been running from, that God has rescued him before and God is rescuing him still. It makes me uneasy. I mean, I, I understand when we sing songs or when we read passages or, or when we listen to sermons that so often when we tell stories about Scripture, we use the past tense. We say that God has rescued us. And that is true. The only problem is when you say things like God has rescued me, you need to make sure in your mind you say, and God is still rescuing me. That it's never past tense in our lives. That this journey we're in, it's not over yet. And you and I don't ever get to say that I'm done being rescued. See, that's, that's the first place where grace starts to break down in our lives, where we stop sharing it with other people, because we start to tell a false story about ourselves where we used to need grace, but we don't need it any longer. 
See, and once you don't need it any longer, you can stop having the sense that other people around you still need it. You start to blame everybody else for still needing to be rescued while you still need to be rescued. You don't know it, but if you could really see spiritually your own life, that's the backdrop. Right, that in all kinds of different decisions you're making right now that you think are good decisions, decisions that that are going to make your life better or help you achieve something, that in all of that, as, as wise as we think we are, we manage through our own choices to get to places time after time after time where we cannot rescue ourselves. And we need God to rescue us again and again and again. The amazing thing about grace is that it is always grace. The amazing thing about God's rescue is that it is always rescue. It's not something you used to need in your life way back before you pulled everything together. See, Jonah's forgotten that until he's in the middle of the sea and he has nowhere else to turn and he realizes that it's not just that he needed rescuing once, it's that he desperately needs rescuing still. And because of the fact that God keeps rescuing Jonah, it means that God doesn't just have a claim on Jonah's past, God has a claim on Jonah's present and future. And it means that God has earned the right through giving grace over and over and over again and always giving grace. God has earned and is earning and will earn the right to say to Jonah, to say to all of us, I need you. I need you to partner with me And I need you to be the place in someone else's life where they encounter that same rescue. I need you to be the place in someone else's life where they encounter my grace. I mean, someone encountering grace through you is a whole lot more pleasant than encountering grace through a fish. Grace comes in all kinds of forms. There are times where we see it coming and we know that it's coming. And then there are times when we, we don't understand that we're in the presence of God's grace until we look back and we realize that conversation, that, that experience, that moment that we shared with somebody else who was willing to let God use them to be the place where you experience that goodness and that forgiveness and that new start. We, we don't understand it until... We have a little bit of time to think about it and reflect on it. As long as you are still in need of grace, so is everyone else. And if grace is actually doing to you what God wants it to do to you, which is not only for you to sense forgiveness from God or or for you to sense a new beginning from God, that's not how grace works. Grace works when we share it. When we keep it to ourselves for ourselves, that's not grace anymore. And it's not because of how God's treating us. It's because of how we're receiving that goodness from God. It's like manna, right? If you, if you take too much of it and you hold on to it for yourself, it spoils. It, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Grace is not meant only to be experienced by me. It's, it's always meant to be experienced by us. And almost always through one another. 
Now, all of us have had moments, I believe, where we have experienced God's grace in, in the sanctity of our own hearts, right? We, we've gone through something, we've done something, it's difficult, it's hard, and we come to the realization that we got there because of our own bad decisions and our mistakes, and we, it's not so much that we have hurt anybody else as much as we have just made a mess of things, and so we, we have a conversation with God, and we ask God to help us to rescue us, to save us, and something takes place in our hearts, in our souls, where we have a confidence. This is grace. It happens. But far more often in my life, the place where I experience God's grace is someone else. Someone who's been changed by that grace and finds a way to be a living, breathing expression of God's forgiveness, of God giving me another chance, a new way forward, that I need a brother or a sister in Christ to be that, that person, to be that messenger, to be that missionary of God's grace. If you know you still need grace, then you can know that everybody around you still needs grace. The problem gets worse, I think, not only when we, when we consider grace to be something that we only used to need and, and our hearts start to grow uh, callous and hard towards one another. I think here's another thing that happens. We start to decide that in partnering with God, God says, okay, I want you to, want you to work with me on this. We think, okay, I have a few suggestions about who we're going to show grace to. Because there's some people in my life that I think are more deserving of your grace than other people. You know, people like me. People, people in my family that I like. There's some other people in my family we can talk about later. But people that I like, and I have friends, and, you know, I, I want to be good to them. And I, I'll forgive them if they make a mistake, and I'll, I'll give them a second chance. But then there's these other people. God, I, I don't think it would be good. I don't think they deserve it. They don't deserve grace. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. That's what makes it grace. Nobody has ever or will ever deserve the, the grace of God. Which means that everybody is standing at the same place when it comes to reaching out to God and, and being changed in that encounter. That, that none of us has any advantage I think, here, here's what's funny to me. We can get prideful about having already been rescued before you get rescued. Like we did something to get rescued. And we have to be really careful about this because there are times that I fear that we overplay our hand when it comes to our role in God saving us. Because we have a role in God saving us and rescuing us. We do. It is partnering with God and helping to rescue other people. That's your role. That's how responsible you are in God's grace towards you. You don't cause it to happen. You don't, you don't have the ability to, to sustain it. You, you don't have the ability to say, okay, well, I've done these certain things and I've, I've, I've changed in these certain ways, so surely now I'm different in God's eyes than anybody else. But the reality is our partnership with God in grace is never to save ourselves from ourselves. We can't do that. You can't rescue your own heart from the darkness in your heart. 
but God can. And God does. And the way we know we're being rescued is that God grows in us a realization and a a longing to help other people encounter that same goodness that we've encountered. To be rescued through that same grace that we are still being rescued by. How we get to a place where we think that God sees us differently because we've already been rescued and there are other people out there who have yet to be rescued, I don't know. But what I do know is when we see that truth in our own lives, when we see it at work where we think, okay, I, I think these folks are worth saving, I think these folks are not worth saving. Once we're in that place, whether you know it or not, you're stuck in the belly of a whale or a fish with big scary teeth. You're not in a good place when you see some people as worth loving and being good to and listening carefully to and compassionately to and and doing whatever you can to help them, when you see some people as worth it and some people as not. Because what, what it means is there's still a part in your heart that you are not letting God rescue. There's a place in your life where you are not letting God's grace transform you. I think this gets really difficult for us uh, when it comes to people that we see as our enemies. Sometimes our enemies are people halfway across the world. Sometimes they're halfway across the country. Sometimes our enemies are on the other side of the aisle when it comes to politics or religion. Sometimes our enemies sit across the table from us at work. Sometimes our enemies sit across the table from us at Thanksgiving dinner. Because, see, in the book of, of Jonah, enemy is the name we have already given in our hearts to anyone we've decided isn't worthy of encountering God's grace, especially through us. See, I, I don't know if Jonah would have been totally against some other Israelite being chosen to go speak to the people of Nineveh on God's behalf. I don't know. What I do know is Jonah doesn't want to be that Israelite. He wants to leave that to somebody else. I think you and I know that same struggle. People who we honestly, we feel like they they deserve what's coming to them. People who we feel like, you know what, you you don't make decisions that that are in line with what God wants for for this world. You don't make decisions that are in line with what God wants for your life, how you're going to treat each other. And, And you know what, I don't, I don't think there's anything here worth saving. You and I, we don't want to ever say it out loud, but we write people off all the time. We give up on them. And we don't understand that when we give up hoping that God can rescue other people, we are putting at risk our own hope and God's ability to keep rescuing us from those kinds of thoughts and feelings. Because we need rescuing from them. You can't explain your way to a new place in your heart. You can't argue your way to a new place in your heart. You have to live your way to a new place. And God and God alone helps us live in those new ways. I think we all have people, if we're going to be honest, we wouldn't mind watching them hurt a little bit. I mean, we may not want to cause it, but we'd be tempted to think, well, I'm not going to lift a finger to stop it. I mean, they've hurt a lot of other people, and 
That's fair, right? Jonah shows us the kind of place, this, this mess that we create when we think that way, when we try to run away from God calling us to be people who are not only saved by grace, but save other people through that same grace. I want you to think right now about someone in your life that you are deciding to withhold grace from. There's somebody in your life that you were deciding to withhold grace from. When was the last time that instead you decided to show them kindness or gentleness, patience, forgiveness, truthfulness, I mean, I I just, I want you to be honest with yourself. Is there someone in your life where you've given yourself the permission to stop hoping for? I have. And I, I can tell you this, sitting all alone in the dark, having to face that truth, it's no fun. It's, it's hard and it's, be discouraging. I mean, it could be an awful place to be to say, you know what? I get up here on Sunday mornings and I talk about grace and I describe grace and I preach about grace, but I really have this person in my life where I'm done. Now, here's what's difficult we don't usually get to that place with somebody else quickly or easily. We get to that place through complications and pain and suffering and sorrow. For a lot of us, if, if, you, if you wrestled with who is it in your life you're withholding grace from, they're probably somebody in your, your family. Somebody who used to be a, a friend who was as close to you as your own heart and something happened or maybe something happened over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many times I have sat across the table from Christian parents who are struggling with a child who, whose life is unraveling because of, of drug addiction. And And they have to wrestle every single day with what does grace mean now? And and really for us to find that answer together, I would have to sit across a, a table from each one of you and we'd have to share our stories and we'd have to figure that out. And I know that that means it's really difficult to know exactly what grace should look like. But brothers and sisters, it is our life's calling to keep staying in that struggle. To stay in that place where we know it's difficult and we're not sure if what we've done has been perfect or what we're planning to try is going to work exactly the way we hope. But what we will not do is give up on you and walk away and cut you off and say, I'm done. I'm done. Because when we do that to one another, we... I think we start to believe more in the dark than in hope. Or at least we start to think that the dark is more powerful than hope. And brothers and sisters, that is never, ever true. It's never true. Because of the the power of the resurrection, there is always good reason to hope. That's who we are. We're the people of hope. And so we roll up our sleeves and we, we acknowledge the pain in our hearts and we try again. And we try again 
and we try again. Because we believe that God is rescuing us. And God is rescuing other people through us. And that grace, the way grace works, is that it's not just something for me, and it's not just something for you. Grace is always something we share. And when we share grace, every single time we share grace, we are letting God save us over and over and over again from ourselves. Something you and I will never be able to do alone. We let God save us from ourselves, from our hearts, from our fears, from our shortcomings, from our broken relationships. We let God be the main character in the story of our lives. And when that happens, it doesn't matter how difficult the situation is. It doesn't matter how, how much we're, we're tempted to just to just say to God, leave me alone, or, or to say to somebody else that God has placed in our lives, leave me alone. It doesn't matter how difficult it is. We believe that God is greater than any difficulty we face. And so we reach out again and we say, please, God, please. And every single time in my life, God has answered. And I find that I'm able to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for rescuing somebody else in my life who needs rescuing. Thank you for giving me the strength and the courage to be the kind of person you're calling me to be. I cry out, Jonah says, from the depths. And I thought it was all over. But then you, you came to me. You saved me. You rescued me. Thank you. And it's then, if you notice, right at the end of his prayer that Jonah says, okay, now, now I'm ready to make a promise. I'll do what you've asked. That I'm sharing your heart, God. I'll go where you ask me to go. I'll talk to whoever you want me to talk to. And I'll speak to them in your name. And I'll let you be the one, God, who decides how this story goes. If you look hard enough, brothers and sisters, you can see it. There's this light. There's a light in our lives and in our world, this, this light that is fueled by love, and it is a light that if we'll let it, it is a light that is leading every single one of us home. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our uh, shepherds and their wives will be ready to, to pray with you, to talk with you. And so if you came this morning and, and you're in a place where you need to reach out to God, you need to pray for God's deliverance and guidance and wisdom and grace, then please go to these couples as, as we're singing. If you came this morning and you want to thank God for the fact that God's rescued you and is rescuing you still, if, if your heart is filled with joy and hope, go to these couples and pray with them. We want to be community for one another. We want to be instruments of grace in one another's lives. And so please give our shepherds the opportunity to be that for you. I'm going to ask them to stand up briefly so you can kind of see where they are, and then the rest of us will stand and sing.